You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Rhea Fry's passion in life is telling stories, connecting with readers, and helping other aspiring authors tell their stories too. She's the celebrated author of Not Her Daughter, Because You're Mine, and Until I Find You. She also is the founder and CEO of Right Away, where aspiring authors become published authors. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Rhea. Thank you so much for having me. You know, um, first of all, I, I know you've got some big news coming out, which is uh, a new book coming out on February 4th, The Secrets of Our House. And I, and I definitely want to talk about that, um, talk about that book. But before we do, I always like to say that this is sort of, you know, revealing this, this, this podcast is, you know, revealing the stories behind the stories. So please uh, tell me, where does your story as an author begin? Ooh, that's a good one. I mean, you know, I never really thought about truly being an author because I actually grew up with a stereotype of you can never make money as a writer. It's a total, you know, total hobby, total side hustle, or, or just this dream that, couldn't really become a career, but I grew up in a household with a father who was such an avid writer. My dad is a wonderful poet. He always like was writing um, and really inspired me to write. So I grew up as a, you know, really journaling, writing poems, writing stories, but I didn't think I was ever going to pursue it. And then I ended up going to the Columbia um, in Chicago for fiction writing. I was like, why not? Let's give this a try. And started out actually as a journalism major and changed it. And I got a really shitty novel published um, when I was 22 years old. I really rushed that process. Um, It was nothing more than a vanity press. And I just, you know, did everything wrong. I never saw a dime from that book. And I was so burned by that experience that I was like, I'm not, I'm not touching fiction anymore. Like, I don't want to do this again. But I also took it upon myself to start learning about the industry. Like, where where did I go wrong? Why was I in such a rush to get published? What did I need to know about the business? And so I quickly pivoted to nonfiction and got four books in the health and wellness space traditionally published and was like, great, I know how to get a book deal now. But I did not have that author platform, which back then wasn't really as important as it is today. But I was like, I can write a book, I can publish a book, but now I need to know how to sell a book. So I was on this author journey, but I still wasn't really making good money from it. I was still treating it like a side hustle. Um, And, you know, kind of fast forward a bit. I didn't touch fiction for 10 years. I really wanted to return to it. Uh, Late 2016, early 2017, I got an idea for a novel and was like, I'm I'm going to do this this time and I'm going to do it the right way. So I was working three jobs at the time. I went home. I quit two of them. I gave myself an eight week deadline to write a book. I wrote a book in a month, 
got the agent, the book went to auction, landed a two book deal um, with St. Martin's Press, a movie deal, another two book deal. So it was like this really long journey seemed to all of a sudden cement itself into a real quote unquote real career. And I thought, man, now this time it's all going to be different. I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to sell a million copies and everything's going to be great. And while a lot of wonderful things happen, I still continuously learn along my journey in these, you know, these past four books, the past four years, I've learned invaluable lessons, which I share with authors, but, um, but yeah, my career really started (laughs) with that really terrible first novel and being in a rush to just get out there, get a book out there before I even knew how it all worked, which I think is a, a very common mistake a lot of writers make. You know, I, I'm, I'm curious. You say it's a terrible novel. What, what made it a terrible novel? I was, well, you know, I think I felt prey to that cliche of like every writer, like it's fiction, but it was, it was totally not fiction, but it's about a woman who abandons her children to pursue her dreams of becoming a professional boxer, which I mean, come on. Um, but I actually really, I was, I used to be a competitive boxer and I ended up getting brain surgery Um, so it really chronicles that whole thing. I think I was using it as a therapeutic process to, to process my own, my own trauma in a book. Um, and you know, it just, it needed some, it needed some work. 22 year olds writing novels. It's, it's not your best work. (laughs) Yeah. I always like to tell people that I, I always had dreams of becoming a boxer, but I just, I just never liked the idea of being hit. Yeah. And I, I realized, you know, after my, my brain surgery, my neurosurgeon was like, no, it's awesome. You're a boxer. We'll put four titanium plates in there, 16 screws. You'll be back in the ring in no time. And I was, and then it dawned on me. I was like, what am I doing? I am risking my health, my brain, which is my most important asset. Um, it's just not worth it. So I loved the sport so much, but it wasn't ultimately it was not worth my health. You know, even though you consider that book sort of a, uh, you didn't use the term failure, but I can assume that you might oh, think it's it a is. So it's a flop, it's a failure, but it sounds like you learned something from that experience that, that you took away. So it, it couldn't have been that much of a failure. No, I think it was a catalyst, actually. I, I don't, I think if everything had gone really well, I would have been really naive going forward. I, I probably wouldn't have done the due diligence and the research um, to understand the ins and outs of the publishing industry, because it's not something we're taught as authors. No one is sitting down saying, this is how to be an author. This is how to be a successful author. This is how to define success. This is how to make money. This is how to expand your brand, um, which is you know, what I do now with authors um, and advocating for them and really helping them figure it all out. Yeah. So tell me, I mean, just you kind of painted a picture of kind of writing that, you know, first, not that first novel, but when you, yep. when you said, Hey, you have an, an idea for, for fiction, um, yep. you know, after taking some time away and, and doing nonfiction, you gave yourself a deadline of eight weeks and, and you wrote something in four and then found an agent and it went to auction. And that as, as a timeline to me sounds yeah, ridiculously, <laughs> um, yep. you know, it's like, it's like a dream. I never hear of stories like that. Um, what, what, you know, how, kind of piece that all together for me. Yeah. So I, I'll preface this by saying I am a fast writer. I've always been a fast and furious writer. Um, I'm not someone who can spend five years on a book. I just, I would change it too much. I have an editing background. So I'm always kind of changing things as they grow. 
Um, but with that book that I saw that book from beginning to end all in one go. And it just, it was the most out of body experience I've ever had that book. I always say it wrote itself. It just flew out on the page. Um, it was a very provocative concept. So I knew, you know, it had marketability and sellability. Um, and I just wrote it edited it. I knew how to pitch to agents. I'd interned at a literary agency. I'd done all my research um, and just found someone who, who fell in love with it. So it was, it was just such a fast and furious process, but it had been years and years and years in the making. Right. Yeah. No, no one sees that part of it, right? No, no one sees no, the, the slow burn. Um, yeah, yeah. We always like to say there, there are no such things as overnight successes, even if it looks like it, it's um, sure. no one sees the journey leading up to it. What was so provocative about that story? So this book is based on a five-year-old who gets kidnapped from her mother in order to save her. So it's kind of a reverse play on kidnapping. Like, is there a kidnapping for good? Can you take a child? Um, and so I really love, like, I always joke that with fiction, I love writing about things that scare the shit out of parents or there are worse nightmares. So I, I write about, you know, a child dying or getting kidnapped or, you know, like a child being without a guardian. Um, my third book was about like a blind widow who believes her three month old son has been swapped for another baby and no one will believe her. So I really love playing with these black and white concepts and, and making the reader struggle with, with what they would do and how they would react. So, you know, a lot of that came from studying my genre. I didn't even know I knew I like to read thrillers and suspense books, but I'm actually in what's considered the domestic suspense genre. And I was like, what's that? I don't even know what that is. Um, which means you're just focused on relationships a little bit more than a straight up mystery. So it's been really, really fun to kind of like dip my toe into this genre and, and see what shakes out. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think that I, so I have a twin brother. I'm also the, the father of triplets. Um, Father, let's, oh, I know, I know they're, and they're closer Ooh. to 20 than 19 right now. It's pretty amazing, but, um, and they're all still alive, which is great. But yes, I often, great. sometimes, I sometimes think that like, I may have been separated from my real twin brother at birth because my, 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 my twin, who's, you know, certainly one of my best friends, we are so incredibly different. Like there is nothing, I mean, we don't even look the same. He's like, He's like three inches taller than me as olive skin. You got the Italian side of the family. I got the Irish side of the family. Um, you know, fortunately, I got the sense of humor and he's a lawyer. So uh, <laughs> no sense of humor at all. Could be could be a story in there. Um, yes. Well, you know, you mentioned sort of that that first attempt at fiction. You were 22. You mentioned. Yeah. Now, in, in my words of advice that um, I'm going to peel back the curtain a little bit for, for the audience who, who, who probably don't know. I usually do these these pre- uh, pre-interview questions that I have everyone fill out answers to. And that's really my way of, of, of screening people a little bit. I rarely, if ever, bring them into the conversation. But something else happened to you at 22, because I asked you, uh, what words of advice would you give your younger self? What What did you write? Do you remember what you I wrote? Said, yes, do not get married at 22. It's just, it's just not a good idea. You just, you shouldn't think about it. You shouldn't do it. Nope. Just say no. So um, yeah, since so this is uncorking a story, I have to know what's the story there. Yeah. So ironically, I, you know, I got this book published before I turned 22 and I also got married before I graduated college. So I met this guy in the boxing ring of all places. So we had established a relationship on beating the shit out of each other, which is just not, not a great foundation for any relationship. 
Um, but he was also 12 years older than me. So he was closer to age um, with my parents than with me. And we dated for a couple of years. I, and I'm someone, I never wanted to get married. I never wanted to have kids. I've now, you know, been married twice and have a nine-year-old. So it's just funny how life works out. But I remember, you know, getting ready to walk down the aisle and having a full-on panic attack. And just my whole body was screaming, no, don't do this. And I remember my dad like, Hey, we can, we can run away. You don't have to do this. And I, I didn't honor that part of myself because everything was paid for. Everyone was already there. So I went through with it and, you know, we, we lasted a total of seven years, um, talked about divorce for the last three of them. We're now great friends and it's, you know, it's all good, but we just, were not, we're not the right fit. And I always say like, I don't, I don't think anybody should even think about marriage until they're in their thirties or, or not do it at all. You don't have to do it at all. Just, just live with someone. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was engaged at 22 yeah. married, um, married at, at 23. Maybe I was, I was about to turn 24. Um, yeah. it is, it is, you know, you're not really an adult at that point. Um, no. Or your, your, your brain, I like to say your brain is still sort of forming itself. I mean, unless you're getting hit in the head all the time by being yeah, the right. boxing. So maybe that, I'll just blame it on the boxing. Are you still married? I am still married. Yes, we are. We are still married, you, you know, awesome. with three, uh, three kids later, but it's, you know, um, you know, it's, it, it hasn't been without its challenges that that's for certain. Sure. Um, hasn't course. been without its challenges. We, you know, we had a, a great foundation of friendship. I met her when I was 18. So, yeah. um, it was like the first day of college, you know, <laughs> it's one of those things. That's um, amazing. That's super rare these days. I feel like, yeah, it was, it was rare. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it is what it is, but you're right. I mean, at, at 22, 23, you're still kind of, uh, still kind of figuring shit out. You know, you haven't really lived life yet. Um, no, I mean, we, we constantly evolve and change. Like I'm 40. I'm such a different person than I was at 30 than I was at 20. I mean, it's just, it's just a constant evolution. And I think growing with someone can be a challenge if you're not completely on the same page. And, and he and I were not, I mean, that was apparent from the, from the get-go, but, um, but it's not an experience I, I regret. It's, you know, it's really led me to, to where I am now. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, okay. it, it happened and, and, you know, there's, I always like to think that even, even from our mistakes um, or missteps, we, sure. it's, it's an opportunity to learn from it. And, um, I think the difference between success and failure is being open to learning from those sort of missteps. So you can, you know, again, it's all, we're all still trying to, I'm 48 years old. I'm still trying to figure yep. out who I am as a person at 48 or 47. Okay. I think I'm 47. I can't even remember. I know it all. I, I'm just like, it doesn't it, matter really after 48, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't. Yep. I agree. Um, you know, another thing I have to ask about, um, because your, your response to this one was so, uh, intriguing to me, you know, if you didn't write for a living, what <laughs> would you do? What, do you remember what you said? I said a couple of things. I think, um, an assassin, I'd love to, to be an assassin. So my husband and I always joke, like we would be the best assassins. And I don't know, I don't know what that means exactly, or what that says about us, but I've done a lot of work with um, death row inmates, so convicted murderers. I've I've worked a lot as a journalist with them, spent time with them, been on death row, and I've always had the biggest sense of empathy for these human beings who were once 
you know, innocent. And at some point, something happened to really change the trajectory of, of their lives. So um, I've spent so much time in that space that again, my husband and I joke that we could, we could be assassins and just sleep, sleep well at night <laughs> that says, or, you know, be a, I could be a therapist, which I mean, after what I just said, I wouldn't have any business, I don't think, but I kind of serve as, as a therapist to all of my friends, to all of my clients. I was a personal trainer for 15 years. That was like a form of, of therapy in and of itself. So I've always loved to put myself in a position of, of just helping other people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I like, you know, I, I talk to, I talk to your therapist every week and, and she's wonderful, but I, what I realized it's the, um, there's nothing magical about having that degree. It's more about, you know, being a good listener and, and, and sort of, you know, not always providing your opinions, but just kind of asking yep. the right, asking the right questions. And I think as, you know, somebody who writes, you know, for a living as well as consults with authors, you know, we're just naturally curious individuals. And I think it's letting that curiosity lead us a little bit is, uh, is so Definitely. important. You also said a professional athlete. So as assassin therapist or professional athlete or a therapist who's secretly an assassin and moonlights as a professional athlete. So there I mean, go. come on, the best of all worlds. Yeah, I was a <laughs> I was a gymnast for 13 years um, growing up and really, really wanted to to push that um, as far as I could. And again, with the with the competitive boxing, I just think I don't know. My husband was a semi-professional rugby player. Now he's um, super entrenched in in jujitsu and being active is such a huge part of our lives, but we always joke about that too, that we kind of both miss the, the professional athlete boat. And now our bodies, you know, are, are really feeling it at 40 um, from a lifetime of beating the crap out of them. So sure. that's fun. It's, it's not like you were golfing. No, no. <laughs> if you yeah. are, do you ever argue you with him about, you know, you know, boxing versus jujitsu? I mean, do you ever throw down and, and. I mean, I started a little bit of jujitsu as well. I've had, um, knee surgery, so I have to be, you know, I, it's just not worth getting injured at this point, but jujitsu and boxing are so wildly, wildly different. Um, and I mean, I, I much prefer jujitsu. I think it's, it's way, way more beneficial. Um, and everybody should, should know how to defend themselves. I think it's very important. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, let's talk about the secrets of our house, which is going to be available on February 8th. Tell me, uh, tell me a little bit more about this story and how it came to you. Yeah. So this one is a wild departure from my other three books. So my other three books are, or, you know, again, like I said, domestic suspense, um, very kind of hooky. This is much more family saga, family drama. The setting is very important. So the, in a nutshell, the book is about a family of three, a husband, a wife, and a 17-year-old daughter who go to their dream vacation getaway house called the Black House, which sits on the top of this mountain. And they want to have just one last summer together. Um, the couple's trying to save their marriage. The daughter's about to leave for college. And they're really just <laughs> looking forward to a nice, mellow summer when they get there these long, long held secrets start to come out for each of them. And then a, a really big tragedy ensues, which, which has all of them, you know, fighting for their lives and, and really figuring out what secrets are going to be revealed and what damage is going to be done from it all. So it's, it's a totally different book for me, but 
the setting itself, um, the house is actually based on a really good friend of mine, um, her house, Emily Carpenter. She's also a kind of Gothic thriller writer. And I walked into her house. It's just monstrous compound. And I was like, this is the best place for a murder. Um, I have to write about this house. And while there's no murder in secrets of our house, um, it really was the impetus for, for this book. So the, the house is what, what started this story for me instead of the characters or the storyline. Wow. I mean, family, family secrets, there's, there's so much richness there because who, who can't relate to that? Right. Yeah, exactly. And how, I, yeah. How well do we ever, do we ever really know the people that we're living with, you know, down to the deepest, darkest secrets they might be, be hiding from us. Deep, dark secrets. I just learned, um, I was, this, this is kind of roundabout. My parents are 89 and 88. They've been married for this year. It'll be 64 years. Wow. And I learned recently that my mother had a boyfriend before my father. Um, yeah. Not after, because that would have been much more scandalous. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> but before, and apparently he was the love of her life and he lost his oh. life in a boating accident, like off the coast of New Rochelle, he drowned. Um, and then it was almost like I, I my, my father was sort of number two. Um, and you know, I never knew that and it was never spoken of. Um, but it's like, yeah, I mean, all families have big secrets, small secrets, and, and I'm curious to unearth more secrets. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, the parent child dynamic, you know, children don't often see their parents as these, you know, thriving, flawed human beings with a whole past before them and, and very like rich layered, like a rich layered background. And I mean, what you just said really illustrates that, like, we don't think about them being heartbroken and in love or, you know, just all of the things that we all go through that might not come to the surface, even though you, you share a home for at least 18 years, it's just wild to me how much sometimes parent and children, um, parents and children don't know about each other. Yeah. And it's, it's actually, you know, part of, of I think the secret sauce to, uh, I'm sure you've seen back to the future with Michael J. Of Fox course. and, you know, <laughs> you know, of course it's, it's a, it's a compelling story, but this notion of seeing your parents at your yeah. age, you know, and oh. kind of, cause we never think oh. of, I mean, I never thought my parents as, as real human beings. I thought that they were almost deities in my mind. And you know, the, the father of three 19 year olds, I mean, they probably think that I'm some, you know, I, I want to say flawless, but I know they, they hold me to a higher regard. I, I was talking to my daughter the other day and my, my twin brother, my aforementioned twin, um, went through a divorce three years ago. Um, he, and you know, before that divorce, he had been seeing somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the, their family kind of structure kind of fell apart. Yeah. And my daughter was saying, you know, I'm really disappointed in, in uncle Jimmy, because, you know, he was, you know, doing such and such with such and such. And I'm like, I understand, you know, how you feel that way, but you know, it's, it, you need to know the, the full context of kind of what's happening. I'm not excusing his behavior, but I'm trying to understand it a little bit, but I, I think Absolutely. kids. Yeah. yeah. Infidelity is, I mean, I wrote a, I actually wrote a book about infidelity uh, back in 2010. Um, but it's always, always indicative of, of something on both sides of the relationship or something people, you know, aren't getting. And like for my parents, I grew up with a really different environment though. Cause my parents got married at 18 years old, had my brother had me at 22. They're still together. So they were kids like raising us. So they were almost more like 
friends in a sense than the, I didn't look at them like parents because everybody else's parents were older. Um, we, you know, all my friends always come over to our house. Like it was just, I don't know, it's just been so different. So we're all kind of growing older together, which is, is really, really interesting. And now with my daughter, there's only one kid. I mean, my brother won't have kids. My husband's brother won't have kids. So our daughter is it. And the bond that my parents have with my daughter is it's unlike anything I've witnessed. And they're like, you and your brother are great, but like, she's number one, like the grandparent grandchild relationship is, is the best thing ever. So right. it, that's, been, that's been really cool to see. Yeah. Well, I know you've, uh, you have um, a lot of wisdom in, in your years, uh, stemming from that first kind of misstep with, with your first novel, but also learning a lot um, uh, during the publishing process. Uh, talk to me a little bit about right away um, and uh, sort of, you know, how you, how you um, kind of came to, you know, being a, a support for, for other authors. Yeah. So it's called right way. Um, and you know, I started this as a side hustle back in like 20, 2017, 2018, before my debut novel came out, um, not her daughter. Um, cause I don't, I just don't consider that first book a real book. So I say it's my debut novel, but I wanted to hire an outside publicist for $20,000 for that book. And I was like, I need to do some stuff on the side. So I'm not using my advance and I'm not, you know, I, I want to do this again, quote unquote, the right way. So I started helping authors create their nonfiction book proposals to pitch to agents and or editors and land them agents and book deals. I also did some ghostwriting. I, you know, edited fiction, but I just started helping clients on the side. And the first year alone, it turned into a six figure business. And I was like, what? Without, without trying, just based on referral. Uh, second year, same thing. So at the top of 2020, before the pandemic hit, I was like, I'm turning this into a real business. So we launched Rightway at the top of 2020 and then the pandemic hit. And I was like, what have we done? This is, this is not going to be great. And instead in the last two years, it's been quite the opposite. We've had um, close to 65 authors, first time authors land top literary agents and book deals. Some have gone to become number one best-selling authors. Um, our nonfiction book proposal methodology is really like the special sauce. I, like we help you create book proposals that sell. And a lot of people don't know that, that to sell a nonfiction book, you create the book proposal. You don't write the book first. Whereas with fiction, you have to write the book, edit the book, then you pitch it. So we also pitch our clients to agents that we know and we trust. Um, so it's a very, very one-on-one -on -one process. We really walk them through what they need to know, how to negotiate contracts, how to get paid, um, because I love teaching all the stuff that no one taught me and no one does teach you. The, the publishing industry is a very antiquated private industry, so we really focus on a client's like big why, their big goal, why they're doing this. We help them choose their publication path, even if that's self-publishing. Most people want to get traditionally published. And then we help kind of curate a, a plan to get them there. And, you know, I, I may have missed it when you said it, but are you just focusing on nonfiction or fiction as well? So we do both, but this year we've really, <clears throat> excuse me, really decided to lean into nonfiction because that's predominantly where, um, just where our business is. And a lot of these people aren't authors. They're not writers. They're business owners. They're executives. They're lifestyle experts. They're 
they're people who want to legitimize their brand or business with another product to sell. And a book is a great way to do that. But we will take on a very few um, select fiction projects. We, we offer, you know, used to offer just the whole gamut of developmental editing, copy editing, proofreading, pitching. We'd help self-published authors, you know, get everything ready to go um, or pitch fiction authors to agents and editors as well. Yeah. I think that's the, the hardest thing for, for fiction writers. And speaking from experience is yep. just finding an agent who's, who's going to take a chance on you. Um, yes. That's yeah, it's, to me, I could, li- I could wallpaper my office. Now I have a green screen behind me, but if I, if I oh, yeah. put that down, um, I could wallpaper my office with just form, form letters yep. of just, you know, yeah, they all say the exact same thing, which I, it always amazed me because, you know, you know, agents are always looking for something new and different and, and unique. And their, their form letters are all the same. They're the exact opposite of what they're looking for. That, that, that actually can be very revealing though, because what we do is I see a lot of fiction authors specifically make this mistake where they'll get their book done. They won't have someone professionally edit it. it and then they, you know, will put their query letter together and then they'll pitch to like, 50 agents. We don't do that. We are very careful with the query letter. We only pitch five agents at a time. And if we got all rejections from those agents, then we know something is wrong with the pitch itself. Mm-hmm. And we can fix that. If you get five full manuscript requests, then great. The pitch is really solid. But then if no one bites, you know, we, we look at it like piece by piece. Like, do we need to tweak the query letter? Do we need to really work on your first three chapters? Um, but it's so tough because fiction is so subjective. So a lot of times it's really understanding your competitors, um, looking into editors, finding, um, sorry, not editors, agents, like looking for the newer agents who are really, really hungry to build their lists. A lot of fiction authors like, I want this huge agent who reps my, you know, favorite author. And while that's great, a lot of times these newer agents are being overlooked and they're the ones that will work the hardest for you. So that I, I, that's what I did. I I had an agent who had been an editor for five years. She was a newer agent. I had a veteran agent that wanted the book. And then this newer agent who was so wildly passionate about it. So I chose her and I'm so glad I did because she's been my biggest, my biggest advocate. Wow. That's, that's a fantastic, uh, a fantastic story. Um, I, I'm curious about your podcast. You, it seems like yeah. uh, you, uh, it's called uh, something provocative. What's, what's the name of the podcast? No, it's just, it's just the, the same name as our, um, <laughs> as our um, business. It's called Right Way. Um, I think I had talked about that. I did a solo episode uh-huh. that had a provocative title called Dear Publishing Industry, Fuck You, because I was just really fed up with my publishing experience and, no one was really talking about it. So I decided to air this, this solo episode episode. It's very, very raw and very vulnerable. And I had New York times, bestselling authors reach out to me, huge authors, my literary heroes, midlist authors, smaller authors, all saying, thank you for saying what I feel like I can't say. So it really got this conversation started. Um, though the, the podcast itself is really aimed around demystifying the publishing industry and, and helping authors understand what they need to know in order to pick their publication path. But, um, but we're really, really honest on there. So all the stuff you want to know about money, about how it really works behind the scenes, 
we talk about all of that. Well, I can't wait to listen to that. And that was the episode I was thinking of. And, yeah. and yep. I, you know, just having, I, I talked to so many authors and it's, um, you know, everyone's kind of polite about it because you don't want to sort of, you know, you know, get blacklisted or something, but um, exactly. it is, you know, and, and I, I have a whole career as a, um, you know, a marketing consultant, you know, outside yeah. of my writing and this podcast. And it is one of the industries that just has not changed with the times. It, it really has not. And there, there's some publishers out there that are trying, but for the most part, it's just the same old model and it really has to change. I mean, authors are getting so fed up, but yeah, they, they don't want to, we don't want to seem like we're ungrateful, but at the same time, it's like publishers are doing less and less for their authors. We as authors have to be marketing wizards, social media gurus. We're spending all of our time on, on everything but the craft and to me, it's like, I wanted to be a writer. So I can like stay in my pajamas and create, like, I don't, I don't necessarily want to be all of these other things because that's not where my genius lies, you know? And I, I think it's very frustrating. It's like, well, it's just the way it is. It's just what you got to do. And so we really work with our authors, especially on our book proposals in the marketing section where our first rule of marketing is like, figure out what you like to do and then ditch the rest. You don't have to do all of these things that everyone else is doing. You can find a way to market and promote your book that feels really, really good for you. I mean, I don't have to do TikTok videos if I don't want to. Oh God. I mean, I, my goal, my goal in the, I, this, everyone's like, you're crazy. My goal is to be a successful author and have no social media. I've already deleted Twitter. I'm deleting Facebook after this <laughs> next launch. Instagram's the only one that doesn't make me want to vomit. Um, and with our business, we are word of mouth referral only. We do not advertise on social media. We take our clients' privacy very seriously. And for me, I mean, I think the next wave is going to be privacy, people wanting more privacy um, instead of just like constantly saturating every single social social media platform. It just takes us away from our real lives and, and our real work. All right. Well, I have a series of seven questions that I call the hot seat. Um, and uh, I, I don't want you to think about these too, too much. I just want you to let your, your gut answer. Um, uh, first one, uh, first up is, how do you feel when you're staring at a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen? Excited. Why excited? Yeah, I, I love starting a new project. I think it's just a world of possibility. It's kind of limitless. It's a clean slate. Um, it's not a, it's not a, a trepidatious thing for me. I love it. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard other people say anxious, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I like it. All right. <laughs> I like, I, I like getting done with stuff and moving on. I'm always ready to start something new. Does anything else give you that same level of excitement or is it a unique excitement? No, I mean, I love, I, there's so many different things I love. I mean, movement is such a huge part of my life, breath work, meditation, um, going to a new place. Like I love that sense of just kind of newness and discovery. So, um, I, I try to get that excitement wherever I can. All right. Number two, what lesson about writing or publishing did you have to learn the hard way? Ha! All of it, how, how to be an author, actually, how to be an author. Um, like I've said in this podcast, I don't think it's something we're taught. And I think we have these big dreams and then we don't really know how it works. So I think really 
you know, having a bunch of, a bunch of missteps along the way and, and asking the hard questions. Um, it's been a very, very hard, but valuable lesson to learn. Now, given, um, you know, you being the founder and CEO of Rightway, I'm sure you have a perspective on this next one, which is what's the best piece of advice you would give to an aspiring author? Oh, I mean, I I know I keep talking about the business, but understand the business that you're about to get into. I know a lot of people say, write the best story you can. And that's great. That's the fun part. But all the stuff that comes after, those are the pieces and parts, the components that will separate you from just writing a good story to being a successful author. So defining what success means to you, figuring out what publication path feels right for you, I think is extremely important. So asking those questions and getting to understand the industry. All right. I know you've, uh, you've had a lot of success with your uh, writing, both fiction and nonfiction, as well as um, amazing success of right way. Um, what way, in what ways do you celebrate your success? Oh, so I'm not great at this. Uh, I've been told that I need to celebrate my success more. Um, I celebrate like when our authors get published, um, or land a deal, it's so exciting. It's so celebratory, but I am not great about celebrating my successes. Um, you know, with a book launch, you usually have a book launch party. That's how I always celebrate that success. But, you know, with, with right way specifically, it's like, we've, we've survived during the pandemic. We've like tripled our revenue and done all these amazing things, but we really haven't celebrated. So yeah, I, I need to, I need to work on that more because I think in this society, we just move on, you know, it's like, oh, cool. The next thing, the next thing, the next thing that sometimes it's hard to like sit still and, and actually appreciate what, what you've accomplished. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, uh, next up, if somebody you loved was having a bad day, what book would you choose to cheer them up? Ooh. Okay. So I'm currently reading this really old, uh, book, but it is one of my faves, but it's called ask and it is given, um, by Esther and Jerry Hicks. And it is really just dropping you into, it has like 22 different practices on actually feeling better. And, you know, it's all about the law of attraction and all that fun woo woo stuff, but you can't read that book and then still stay in your funk. It's, it's so actionable. Um, that would definitely be one that I would, I would hand someone. An anti-funk book. There you go. An anti-funk book. There you go. <laughs> um, all right. So this one is a little bit morbid, um, but um, you know, just imagine kind of you're, you're like living your final moments. Um, mm-hmm. What are you going to be most proud of? You're looking back on your Ooh. life. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm love questions like this because again, in our culture, I think we revere our work. I spend a lot of time on my work. Um, but I think just having loved as many people as I possibly could and them feeling loved by me, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's all about relationships and, and how you've made other people feel, um, in your life, how you've helped them, um, and then also, you know, keeping, keeping a child alive <laughs> is a really tough, a tough task. And um, yeah, like bringing a child into this world and, and watching her grow. Um, there's, there's nothing like it. 
And they don't come with instruction manuals either. Oh my God, do they not? And I had a 52 hour labor with her. So she made me work for it. She made me totally work for it. Do you have a reminder of that 52 hour labor? No. I mean, oh, do I ever remind her? Right. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. All the time. I thought you said, do I have a reminder? Uh, <laughs> of the labor? Um, yes, I remind. It's why she's an only child. Um, <laughs> one and done. One and done. Uh, last, uh, last up here. This is question number seven. And you can't say don't get married at 22. But uh, what, <laughs> what words of advice would you give your younger self aside from don't get married at 22? take it all so seriously. I am a very serious person. I am a bit of a, of a workaholic. I think I would tell myself just have more fun and play. I think, you know, I watch my daughter, she's nine. She's the most imaginative, playful human I've ever seen in my life. And when do we stop doing that? When do we stop taking naps? When do we stop playing? When do we stop like pursuing true fun? Um, so I would say, yeah, have, have a shit ton more fun and just don't take it all. Don't take it all so seriously. Yeah. It's almost like you, I would love to, to go back to that moment in childhood where, and it's probably like a progression. It's not one sure. event, but where the imaginative play stops, you know, where you're oh. no longer content, just drawing pictures or, or putting on a show for, for people and, and just like talk some sense into that person saying, you know, you can still keep doing this. You know, that that's quite all right. There's a book, um, another book I would recommend called The Power of Fun by Catherine Price. She wrote a book called How to Break Up with Your Phone. <laughs> and she just came out with The Power of Fun. And it, it talks explicitly about that. Like, when do we lose that? And, and how to pursue fun and play as, as an adult, which is, is so vital. We don't put any sort of priority on having fun. Saria, we, we've learned a lot here. Uh, number one, we, we've learned um, that uh, you're incredibly gifted, um, that you're incredibly generous and in, in giving back to the sort of uh, the, the, the writing community and, and, and helping shape um, you know, the, the future, the next generation of writers. We've also learned that you don't celebrate your success enough. Um, which no. Is, you know, I'm no doctor, but that's my prescription to you would be to, to celebrate yeah. more. Um, one thing I haven't learned is where will secrets of our house be available when it goes on sale on February 8th? Yes, anywhere that books are sold. And I always recommend to people, if you can go to your local bookstore and purchase a book, it really helps the bookstore. Um, it, I know Amazon is so easy to click. Um, it's just, my books are usually always in target or other big box retailers as well. All right. There you go. Well, wherever books are sold on February 8th, look out for Secrets of Our House by Rhea Fry. Rhea, thank you so much for uh, joining me. Thank you so much for having me.